Welcome, savvy investor, to Skyline Views. Welcome to another episode of Skyline Views. I'm Chris Mills. Today we're talking about single family rentals and what you need to know about it in 2021. My guest today is Gaston Escudero. You recognize him from before. Welcome back, buddy. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. For those who may have not listened to the last episode, probably link to that in the notes because there's a lot of good stuff in there. But uh, why don't you just reintroduce yourself a little bit for those who may not know you? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Gaston Escudero, and um, <clears throat> I'm in the real estate investment securities business. Um, so I'm a, a Series 7 licensed um, you know, uh, broker, if you will, that can uh, talk with uh, investors um, that's you know, regulated by the SEC and by FINRA. And uh, I work for a company called NextPoint. And NextPoint has been around for about 30, 32 years or so. And we manage billions and billions of, of dollars on behalf of retail investors. And um, what we do in a nutshell is, is we buy, again, you know, billions of dollars at a time of real estate and, and structure uh, and securitize these assets into a fund or a, a REIT uh, or, or a, a way for retail investors to get access to a passive portfolio of real estate without having to worry about the day-to-day -day hassles of being a landlord. So whether you're looking to do a 1031 exchange or you're looking to get access to a private uh, or public REIT and putting into an IRA for retirement and getting a nice tax deferred income that's non-correlated from the market. Uh, we do pretty much everything along that spectrum uh, on the real estate side. We're looking at single families today and uh, a lot of people have kind of put that on the shelf over the last, I don't know, number of years because, you know, multifamily seems to be all the rage and um, and there's yeah. other asset classes kind of gaining in popularity, but you and I have been pretty hot on single families for the last little while. So let's kind of start drilling into to why, frankly, and what we see the market doing right now coming out of, you know, the dumpster fire that was 2020. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. It's really, really fascinating. Um, you know, I've been in this industry for about seven years or so on the securities side of real estate, and I've raised money for pretty much every asset class that you could think of, you know, office space and retail shopping centers and hotels and triple net lease um, Walgreens and data centers and industrial warehousing and healthcare facilities and apartments. And, and you know, now I'm, I'm raising money in, in programs that are um, in single family rental homes. And I, I feel um, that every downturn, anytime there's chaos or a, there's a, a recession of some kind, it births opportunities, you know, from underneath the surface that maybe have had some fundamentals that are, that have strengthened over time that just shot up from underneath the surface because of chaos going on. And fortunately, the chaos of 2006, 2007 with the housing market, with millions of Americans that lost their homes, they couldn't pay their mortgage, uh, living beyond their means, if you will. You know, for anyone that doesn't, yeah, that, that forgot or doesn't remember, anyone with a pulse was able to apply for a mortgage and granted a mortgage where maybe half of their income was going towards their mortgage payments, which that's defined as unaffordable. You want to be less than 30%. And 
And so that was really the first catalyst with chaos that led to companies saying, you know what, I bet there's going to be millions of Americans that are going to want to transition from home ownership because they have to, to maybe renting a home or renting an apartment, right? There's different preferences for, for either or. And so uh, apartments completely skyrocketed. That was the easy investment decision out of the housing crisis of 06. But what a lot of people don't realize is that institutions started quietly in 07, 08, buying thousands of single family homes that were foreclosed on and converting them to rentals and then turning, turning them around and renting them to families that just lost their homes. And so over the last 12 to 13 years, apartments and single family rentals have been the top two or three performing asset classes really the last decade. Um, but again, we just experienced chaos last year with COVID-19. And believe it or not, COVID-19 um, completely created this unprecedented demand shift from city living to suburb living. And suburb living is single family homes. And so um, you've seen this big uh, surgence into demand for spacious, detached homes um, with folks that are working from home now. Their kids are doing online schooling. They're working out at home. They want social distance from their neighbors, which unfortunately multifamily apartments with a couple hundred units does not really provide when you're sharing the same elevator, sharing the same lobby with strangers. And so you've seen this big dynamic and shift with families not renewing their apartments, especially if they have little kids um, and they need more space and more affordability and they want a home office or something like that. So uh, we've seen this, this big demand shift for single family homes. And given how well this asset class did last year, uh, commercial real estate took a hit. Um, even apartments took a little bit of a hit. Um, but single family was the top performing asset class by miles last year. For, for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, and so because of that, you're starting to see institutions from around the globe identifying US single family homes as one of the fastest and hottest markets in the US real estate market right now. And you're already seeing pension funds and endowments figuring out ways to deploy billions and buying thousands of homes and, and figuring out a way to scale and grow an operating business around single family homes, which really didn't exist. 10 years ago. So that's kind of where we are right now, given what happened last year in the previous downturn. Yeah, it's really fascinating how either going into a downturn or coming out of a downturn, single families shine, right? Coming out of a downturn, you just thoroughly covered. But even, even going into a downturn, you have, you know, extra exit strategies and just extra options when it comes to the single family market with a 200 unit uh, apartment building, you have to sell to another investor, right? Yeah. But if you if you want to go retail and just kind of capitalize on exactly. inflation and all these kind of things, you can you can always sell a single family to a owner occupant if you wanted to. So yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a lot of options and it's it's really attractive. Um, we also see right now a new generation kind of settling down, starting families, getting more professional, right? But home ownership isn't really the darling that it used to be. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's not just part of their values like it, like it might've been for folks our age. So That's right. um, 
yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of flexibility in this asset class that I that I really appreciate. What are you guys seeing as far as some of those type of statistics or sure. maybe what rents are doing because of, of that generation? Yeah. And, you know, uh, I do want to touch on, um, you know, I th which I think might help uh, round this, this conversation out a little bit. Um, sure. You know, single family rental homes, um, you know, there's about 18 million single family rental homes across the United States today. And there's maybe 500,000 of these homes that are owned by a landlord that's considered an institution. So this is a very fragmented and growing asset class and sector that's becoming institutionalized in front of our very eyes. Um, very similar to in the early 90s, right? Um, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, institutions did not own apartments. They only own office space. They only own hotels. They own retail shopping centers. Owning residential in any sort of way was not part of the repertoire or the or the balance sheet for any institution. Because to your point, being a homeowner, that that was what you did. You know, women got married. You know, as soon as they graduated high school, um, and then they created they created households and they bought a home and moved to the suburbs. And now it's kind of the way to accumulate wealth. Mm -hmm. You know, if you will. But today with technology and, and, and women being more um, embedded in the workforce and, and how folks are getting married later um, and, and they're staying in the job force later. Um, and, and, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the late 80s, you saw mortgage rates hit about 15, 16%. And that was the catalyst that led to institutions starting to buy apartments. And so apartments was a very fragmented asset class in the early 90s. Today, 50% of apartments are owned by institutions. So that's a very similar mirroring that we are seeing today in single family rentals with the institutionalization of buying thousands at a time and kind of scaling the business out. So just wanted to kind of add that in there. Um, but there are some similarities and differences between an apartment renter profile and a single family renter profile. The average apartment, um, for the most part, you know, it's always a law of averages. Not everything is going to be identical, but just over a 50% uh, percentile, the majority of the renters that are in single family homes, they are 40, 45 years old. You know, these are families that are, you know, typically blue collar, you know, uh, households that um, have a couple of kids and they can't afford to be a homeowner, nor do they want to be a homeowner. They don't want that 30-year mortgage. They want that flexibility. And so the average tenants within our uh, asset class category with single family, they typically rent for about four years. Um, and the renewal rate is typically higher when you've got families renting a home in the suburbs where they actually can decorate their home. They can have a front yard. They can have a backyard they can treat it as if it was their own home. So typically that's a stickier tenant base um, and, 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 and has the ability to, to raise rents and keep them um, in place where multifamily is typically a coin toss with if um, a millennial is going to renew or not. So the millennial, uh, lower the lower age millennial and the generations you know, before that are typically the demographics that are targeted with apartments where they've got roommates, they're graduating college, where single family are typically older aging families that 
want to live in a home. They want to be in the suburbs. They want to be near um, the school district. And, and I think between the two asset classes really targets pretty much every renter, you know, in the country right now. Yeah. I personally kept single families or have kept single families in my portfolio, my personal rental portfolio. Um, you know, and I, I probably will do that forever because of that very thing, like tenant turnover can be a pretty high cost if, if it's happening every year. But, you know, if you have a, a three bedroom and, you know, a family in there, they're not going to want to move every year. They're going to move every maybe three or five years from what I've seen personally in the, in the that's exactly. Area. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, Freddie Mac uh, came out with um, a really interesting piece a couple months ago because, you know, when you think about the housing crisis of 07, it was due to a huge overbuilding and speculative lending in the housing market. And so a lot of builders and lenders, um, you know, that kind of woke them up to make sure that that doesn't happen again, the overbuilding and the overlending. So credit standards have risen. Supply has, is the lowest we've seen in 50 years. And so when you've got uh, millennials aging and you've got you know, a population that's growing, there's not enough single family homes to meet that demand for the coming years. Mm. And so because of that, you're seeing home price appreciation accelerating you know, at a faster clip, which is making being a homeowner even tougher. Prices are rising at astronomical rates today because there's about a 4 million home deficit under supply that's not meeting demand. So the law of economics, right? Low, low, low supply, high demand is gonna keep prices going and going and going. And that's really been the case since 2008. And so being a homeowner uh, for families that are making $100,000 of household income or less has been really, really tough to obtain. And even if you are a homeowner, you're, you're kind of barely making you know, that, that mortgage payment uh, on a monthly, month over month basis. So that's really the biggest opportunity is the lack of supply that's not meeting demand. Um, and on top of that, about half of the housing stock throughout the entire country is about 50 years old. So it's a really undersupplied and, and old housing stock. And so companies like Nextpoint and amongst a few others are going out and buying these older neighborhoods and these older homes at significant discounts and, and revitalizing these homes um, and making it now affordable um, and, and, and new, newly you know, rehabbed for, for families to, 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 to live in for, for years to come. So that is really the formula um, that really brings this opportunity for investors to get access to an asset class that is completely underserved, it's undervalued, and you've got big boys coming in and really creating corporations around these homes mm -hmm. you know, on behalf of investors. So just wanted to add that, that piece to it, which I think is really important. Yeah, for sure. I've also found, uh, you know, as I built my personal portfolio, once you get past maybe 10 or 11 of, of the single family, like your insurance yeah. company kind of starts to look at you sideways and, you know, you have all these other, you know, first world problems, admittedly, but, <laughs> but problems that come up. So, right. uh, yeah, it's, 
I don't know. For some people, it's it's a good time to go passive. For some people, you just don't have the option to scale the way you would want to with this asset class, and you, yeah. you need to, to partner with a, a larger company who can who can actually pull off the institutional yeah. bit. The, the, yeah, and that's a really good point. You know, I mean, going back to my previous, you know, there's 18 million single family rental homes, and the you know 99 of those homes are owned by people like you and I or Mr. and Mrs. Smith that maybe owns five or 10 on the side. And to your point, once you get over 10 um, and you might have homes, maybe five, six, eight miles separation, that's tough to manage. That's tough to keep costs in check um, and, and also quality control you know, with, with those tenants. And so um, when institutions are coming into this industry, you know, there's, there's companies that are publicly traded that, that manage 55,000 homes and 80,000 homes. You know, Invitation Homes and American Homes for Rent are really the Yankees of this industry that are publicly traded. And they have thousands of workers that control all of those homes. They have the operations in-house. It's completely vertically integrated. So they've got the technology, they've got the bodies, they've got the efficiencies, they've got the economies of scale to keep costs in check and really grow revenue. And so that's really the, the recipe or the horsepower to make this asset class viable uh, and where the math just works really well when you can manage hundreds, if not thousands in a really small zip code where maybe a couple dozen workers manage these homes super efficiently, which keep costs low. And that's really what institutions are bringing to the table, right? Um, anyone could manage a single family home themselves, but to get access to potentially $10 billion worth of single family homes uh, without you having to do any work, that's really the value add is to get access to an asset class that has more efficiencies, um, has more revenue, um, has access to institutional quality mortgages, mm -hmm. professionally managed portfolio. So that's really the difference there. And that's where I think a lot of uh, retail investors that own single family homes, you know, it's a seller's market, as you know. And so a lot of aging landlords that manage five to 10 single family homes, they're, they're cashing out. And companies like Nextpoint and, you know, these other companies are, are purchasing these homes, you know, at really quick clips to, to, to help them exit from, from being an active landlord. So it's almost a benefit to everyone involved. You know, you're creating a, an affordable house for the tenants, you're allowing baby boomers to exit from actively managed real estate and, and also making a lot of money for investors who are invested in these companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good property management makes all the difference in the world. Even if you buy well, bad property management could, could sink your investment. And even, even if it's you, right? Like I found very quickly, probably four or five properties in, I was like, you know what? can't do this by myself, you know, and do the other stuff that I was doing, even as much as you love your properties and you're going to take care of them better than anyone else would and all that stuff. It's all true. But if you are not a good property manager, which not everyone is like, not everyone's cut from that cloth. So if you're not a, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a special person. No way I could do it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think having good property management um, and try, especially when you're trying to scale and all that kind of stuff, you already talked about the checks and balances and stuff. Yep. It, it makes all the difference in the world. So I, I always encourage people, you know, once you get more than one or two, 
uh, you need you need to either have a company and people working for you, uh, which you know that's the route I did, or um, hire a property manager, you know, somebody competent, someone who's going to watch your back. Cause yeah, doing it, doing it yourself is, is not cool. Um, I wanted to kind of talk about macroeconomics, uh, a yeah. little bit, right. Because yeah. real estate is very localized. So you can't talk about a number of different markets that are going to be different, but on a, on a large scale, we're, we're stepping into inflation territory. Most yeah. of we're already there, right? I agree. So yeah. rents, it, one thing that's great about real estate is, you know, rents and, and home prices go up typically with inflation. So you're kind of covered there. What should people be looking for for their own portfolios or just when they're examining uh, whatever investments they might be considering? Yeah. What should they look for? Like what's the, the insulator to keep from a tenant being over leveraged or you know, protecting from inflation on, on both ends, right? Like it's, it's good for the most part, but there's some aspects that can bite you when your yeah. tenants are, are, are stretched, right? Sure. Like how do we insulate ourselves from that as real estate investors? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, just, just, just a rule of thumb, which is really just real estate 101 is real estate bar none is the best place to be. Um, more particularly rental real estate, is one of the best places to be in an inflation uh, increasing interest rate environment because more times than not, the reason why interest rates are rising and why inflation is picking up is because there's it's a better growing economy uh, beneath it. So jobs are, there's more jobs being created, wages are increasing, asset prices are increasing, things are better than it was previously. And so when things are better, you have the ability to, to raise rents. Um, with tenants, not just single family homes, but office tenants, retail tenants, even hotels that, that has, you know, a 24-hour lease every day, they have the ability to, to raise rents maybe or uh, rates an extra $25 a day if things start picking up, right? So um, real estate is a, is a great place to hedge against inflation and against interest rates. But the, the biggest thing that property managers and asset managers um, need to, to keep in mind is their cost of debt. So being able to lock in interest, because you know, debt is your friend in real estate um, if you use it correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if you can borrow from the bank at 3% and you're buying a hotel that has a cap rate or a, or a free cash flow yield of 7%, you know, you're earning about, you know, you're earning about 4% on your equity. So rates could rise from three to four to 5%, you know, and you're still earning you know, money on your equity. But if you can lock in a long-term fixed rate, um, you can hedge yourself significantly as mortgage rates and interest rates begin to rise. Um, and so for next point, we, we take a lot of pride in making sure that we lock in fixed you know, low cost rates uh, before we decide to roll out a portfolio to hedge from any situation that might rise um, on the interest rate side. But, you know, to also, you know, you know, touch on that, you know, right now it's, it's I think it's really tough for investors to find yield. You know, today's a, a really low yield environment um, and you've got inflation, you know, knocking on the door. So where do you go for income? Where do you go for yield while protecting 
your purchasing power and your principal from eroding and going the other way, right? As rates rise, bond prices uh, move move uh, downward. So um, a lot of folks are almost utilizing real estate as a, as a, as a bond complement or a bond replacement to get a nice yield that can hedge really well against interest rates uh, and inflation. And uh, there's a lot of structures out there um, like non-traded REITs or real estate closed-in funds that own hundreds of billions of dollars of real estate underneath these structures that are hedging uh, all day long, every single day. And that could be a way for retail investors to diversify their portfolio and get a nice yield while protecting their money in the environment that I think we're all in agreement on that we're, that we're pretty much in, you know, for, for the next probably five to 10 years. So that, that's just my take on, on how to get access to real estate and why and, and, and what, you know, how it would make sense given the environment. Sure. As we wrap up Gaston, is there anything yeah. about single family investing uh, that maybe we haven't touched on today that uh, investors should be paying attention to? Yeah. You know, I would say lastly that, um, you know, single family rental homes, again, is, is becoming an institutional asset class and, and, and us at next point and institutions from across the country uh, really believe that this is the very beginning, uh, early stages, early innings of a long-term growth trajectory for this asset class, um, not just from a, from a rent growth perspective or a, or a, a property appreciation, but from an institutional perspective. And uh, getting in um, into a trend before it becomes a mainstream trend is really the opportunity. Uh, when institutions are sniffing around and they're dipping in toes in something that's foreign or new, there's something there more times than not. And so I would, I would uh, urge you to you know, Google and, and read up on, on the asset class and, and look at how um, and, you know, institutions are, are really creating economies of scale and efficiencies that a lot of landlords can't do. Um, and you know, maybe look into getting access to, to this asset class through you, through a lot of investments as, as an advisor of yourself can, can give investors access to. So I think that's really all, all the talking points without getting too much into the product that I'm not allowed to talk about right. today. Cool. So. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, thanks for your time. I think, uh, yeah, it is definitely something people need to be paying attention to. So I'm glad we covered it today. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Skyline Views with Chris Mills. We hope you found this valuable and useful feel free to share it with friends or family that could benefit as well. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. We really appreciate it. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us through thehaneycompany.com. See you next time. The information provided in this episode is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. Skyline Views, The Haney Company, their employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are advised to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant for the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. 
Christopher Mills is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisor representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Neither Coastal Equities Incorporated nor Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated is affiliated with Skyline Views or the Haney Company. Advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801.